Hi everyone and welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori and I am here with the beautiful Sarah who has the cutest hair ever today. And we are going to learn a lot about an organization called Sash Bearer. Um, and we have the founder and president of the organization here to share a little bit about her story and connection to BPD and the organization um, of Sash Bearer and what services they provide. So Lynn, we're so happy to have you here. I feel like I'm very excited to hear you uh, share with our audience today and just the floor is yours about uh, where you want to start with your story and connection to BPD. Thank you, Laurie. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Like for me, it's such an important thing to try to share our story, to try to uh, help other people, right? Um, and then uh, to find ways to uh, fill the gaps in services or in support to for our loved one and for family members, right? So I'm really excited to be here. And then thank you for noticing my accent. <laughs> And acknowledging it because I feel every time I feel very conscious about it. So that the fact that you like it, maybe I'll feel more at ease with it. <laughs> we actually have a really, really um, strong member of our community who's actually two of them who are uh, francophone. And um, I'm always like, we need to get Aaron on here to do a podcast in French. I feel like it would be so much fun. <laughs> so anyways, tell us a little bit about yourself to start off. Okay, so yeah, like uh, when I look of where I am today and where I was, let's say, 15 years ago, I never thought I would be in this path of uh, being like founder and president of the Sash Bear Foundation, which is a, a charitable organization who is providing services and support, skills and hope to family members and uh, of loved ones who, who are struggling with the uh, borderline personality disorder threats or with emotion dissimulation. So when I look at uh, when it all started, I would say probably like uh, when my daughter was 12 years old, right? Um, Sasha was a, a swimmer. She was a young athlete hoping to make the Olympics in swimming. And uh, being um, a good student and uh, and really struggling. And um, to tell the truth, I didn't know much about mental health or wellness or like disorder. Like uh, I would say, not that we didn't have any in our families. Like you know, my uh, family, like my parents and things like this. But that's not something we were really discussing. So when Sasha started to struggle, like uh, we were trying to make sense out of it and. Uh, we did actually like were referred to a psychologist because of her swimming. Sasha was starting to struggle, and then uh, and often coming home crying, and we didn't understand why. And then we thought maybe it was because of her sport. So then they refer to a sports psychologist, and then the sports psychologist referred to a, a psychologist, and then they were saying, "Oh, like." spend more time with your kid, like take her shopping and be nice to her. And, uh, and then uh, we tried that, but it wasn't helping. Right. So today I can call it her emotion dysregulation, but at the time I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know what was, what was happening. And then we were really like trying to figure out what we were doing wrong or what was wrong with her, like really thinking that way, right? And today, like we would not be using necessarily those words, but this is what we were trying to figure out at the time. And then um, 
as the year went by, like the situation were really getting worse. I always say, you know, like the more I was uh, trying to reason with her, the more dysregulated she was. And it just didn't make sense. And I didn't know what to do. And then we were being very polarized and yelling at each other and things like this. And you can imagine as a family member, like this is not what you want for your kids or this is not what you want for your family to be yelling at each other and feeling polarized to the point that we weren't hardly talking for a little bit, right? And then almost wanted to be really close, but every time we were yelling close to each other, then it was becoming a fight, right? And how how old was she at this point, just for the timeline? She was probably around 15 years old at this point, right? right. And I must say- and like those are my- like very hard years for a borderline girl. Yeah. And especially there was a lot of things, like my daughter was kind of very- quiet it's funny because she was very outgoing but then for personal stuff she was very closed in right like as a swimmer on deck we say like on deck because then when you go swimming you meet all the other swimmers and uh, Sasha was recognized as the life of the party or the life of the of the deck as soon as she was seeing someone from another club she was running towards them and giving them huge bear hugs and things like that and sharing a is it like a iPod or the music things enough for music and uh, and then she knew everyone from all the different clubs but one came to herself saying like how many friends she had that was probably a very different story right And then I remember when she was trying, and Sasha was really good at swimming. So she was often like uh, the top 10 national-wise for a swim. And then sometimes she was even winning the races, right? Like you can win without being first, like in a sense, like ranking, like national-wise. And she was crying. I said, Sasha, you won. And then today, like I said, I would not say this, but I was saying like, you should be happy. You should be celebrating. Why are you crying? You know how it doesn't make sense. Have fun and celebrate. But what I didn't understand is her goal wasn't necessarily to finish first, but really to improve her time. So and knowing what I know, I was going to say, knowing what I know now, I would say, wow, it's hard for you that you didn't make your time. And at the same time, maybe we could celebrate that you finish first, right? And then tomorrow you can continue working on your time, right? And that, Lynn, is so beautiful to know, like, all of the reflection that you've been able to do over these years to to be able to reflect and be like, that wasn't the right thing to say, but here's how I would say it differently in the future. And I really hope that the friends and family of our listeners who are going to hear this story can do the same because that's really powerful and we all appreciate it. Thank you. And like, you know, yeah. can I also just say that like we, and you know this, which is why you said what you said, but like, we need validation that doesn't always make sense to people, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think you validate her for winning. And that doesn't even matter to her because she's like, I have to get the next best thing to try Mm -hmm. to feel worthy. Like just Mm -hmm. winning isn't enough. Right. And people like don't understand that sometimes what they think is validating isn't validating. 
So true. And this is when, when we teach our program to our families, sometimes when people say, oh, validation, I tried it, didn't work. I said, wow, well, if it didn't work, is because when you look at the definition of validation, it's really identifying and communicating what the other person is trying to tell you through either like behavior, emotion. Then if you didn't, if this didn't work, is because it wasn't a validation. And it's not because validation didn't work, right? We have an example that we use often for our families to understand like what it really means is let's say if two people go out and one of them at the end of the evening said, oh, I really had a nice evening. And the other person is telling me, oh, yeah, tell me more about it. This is not too validating, but that we said this statement could be very validating, but depending of the situation, this become an invalidation and a validation or to say, Oh, I had a very nice evening. And the person said, of course. Almost saying, because you were with me, you had a good, uh, good uh, evening. This, again, this sentence could be a validation, but there it wasn't validating. But if I say, me too, then it's very validating. And this is what we say. Like It's not because we say those sentences are good validation, that they always good validation. And this is a good point, Sarah, you're bringing in for family members. Like I said, sometimes we're going to say things with the best intention in mind. And it doesn't mean that it's the like the right thing to do. And for us, it's important that we understand. And we, we spend a lot of time explaining to family members what validation is all about. Because like you said, it sounds very obvious and it's not. And curiosity is really key, right? But curiosity in a very passionate and compassionate way too, right? Because depending of how you say it, and then I always say the word why. Why why are you crying? Is oh my goodness, so judging, right? When when you think of it, right? And that's why I wish I knew all this 15 years ago, right? Yeah, I can only imagine how that would feel. But I also know that like the teaching and training and consulting work is like, that's doing so much good. Right. But I did just want to say, I am, I'm working really actively to practice vulnerability with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with my mother and it is, it's, it's so natural to her to say like, I'm so sorry. I wish I could take it away because to her, that's her communicating like her love for me. And to me, I'm like that ship sailed of wishing this was gone a long time ago. What I really need in this moment is like you to see what the thing is that's happening. That's making me feel this again, you know? Um, And part of it has been my own fear of like explaining to my mom the severity of what living with these symptoms are like, because I don't want her to feel the pain of knowing how much pain her daughter is in. It's so tricky. And there are no handbooks for this, right? It's like, you're trying to write a handbook that can't be written because like Lori always says, there's how many different ways can borderline show up Lori? Like 256, I think. Ish. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every situation is different too, right? Yeah. Not only that, like the nine traits, depending how they are, and then the co-concurrent disorder as well on top yeah. of it that can influence as well those traits. So each person can be so different. And this is why it's uh, it's not easy. And like to be genuine, like you said, and transparent about it. And then it's not easy. And then for us, even as family member, to show our own vulnerabilities, right? Because I remember with my kid, like I have a funny example that I I share often with the families is like to regarding emotion is there was a few years back, a few years, maybe many years back that uh, at some point you were able to fly and bring two kids for free with you. So we were doing Toronto, Montreal, you know, to make them uh, visit the family or whatever. So we were a few families jumping into this offer and bringing the kids. And at some point, one of the flight, the there was so many turbulence. That I was scared myself. And I had all these kids next to me. And I said, oh my goodness, if they're scared, what will we do? So instead of telling them, wow, like it feels very scary to have the plane shaking like this. And maybe let's try to make fun out of it. So this way it goes faster, knowing that even if there's turbulence, the plane is safe. Instead, my first instinction, I looked at it, I said, oh, kids, and looking at my face, like I'm so scared, you know, a bit like uh, thinking uh, uh, the movie, Mama, I Miss the Plane. And he goes when he's, he gets really scared because there's some uh, uh, people trying to get into the house. Like my face was showing really fear. And I was trying, I was telling the kids, oh, this is fun. The pilot is doing roller coaster for us. But then showing my face that I was really scared and almost telling them this is fun. So imagine the message I was providing to them that being scared is fun. Didn't make sense out of it, right? Instead of saying, oh, I'm really scared and you must be too, or it sounds like you're scared too. And we know that even if there's the, the plane is shaking like this, like uh, research shows that it's safe, right? That it's it's really safe. And let's try to make fun out of it and pretend that he's doing roller coaster. Then it makes sense, right? And then my my expression is accurate. Yes, I'm a bit scared, and I'm trying to do like that opposite action and have some fun with it. So this way, it's easier to go through it, right? Mm-hmm. Now knowing all those skills, it makes sense. But this is why it's so important to educate families as well. That it's important that we express what we're feeling and there's nothing wrong to show that we're vulnerable because how can we teach our kids to be vulnerable if we don't teach them, right? Absolutely. And I wonder, so, you know, you're you're talking 15 years ago, I feel like it was a much different landscape for showing emotion 15 years ago. I mean, I was diagnosed... 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago now. And even then it was challenging, let alone add five years to that. So what, what was that process like of recognizing the borderline traits and getting treatment? That's a good point. So like I said, like at 15, my kids were struggling. She did a suicide attempt. We're trying to find services here in Canada. Didn't work. Like they told us like tough love and, uh, 
And the scary part is after you go to the emergency one, they stabilize, they send them at home and you don't have any skills, you don't have any training, you don't have any moral understanding. And because she was 16 at the time, they say teenage angst. Let me tell you, teenage angst is not the same thing as having like BPD traits. So this is another story for maybe another talk. But just to go back, that then she ended up going at the university in the U.S. because Sasha like really enjoys swimming and she was good at school. So then she goes to the U.S. She has a, a 4.0 average and still struggling because she never got therapy. She never got that because supposedly she was a, a teenager that just needed kind of love or support from her families. And what happened there, then she did more suicide attempt to the point that it was becoming very serious. And this was in 2010. And then in March uh, 2010, then she told me like she was in a psych ward there in the U.S. in misery. And then um, I flew to uh, see her. I didn't know what a site work looked like in the U.S., but let me tell you, it was very scary, right? Like, uh, so I had to remove, like, I mean, I just uh, no, no phone, no purse, nothing, right? Similar to when you go to prison, I feel, right? Like, uh, and then they you inventory to- your bobby pins. I had yeah. to take every bobby pin I had out of my hair at 18 years old, and they take, they write it down, and I was like what do you think I'm going to do with a bobby pin? Like other than have my bangs in my face, like what is going on? (laughs) It's uh, yeah. Let's say it's not uh, the most uh, compassionate way to uh, take care of people. Right. So then we go to a room and then she tells me, Oh, mama, like she was telling me how things were there. And uh, like you said, like, this is not the most um, caring, always caring place. So, and then she tells me, oh, like, uh, they told me I was on the borderline or borderline. Oh, for me, like, she probably, like, said, like, I, I'm a borderline. I heard, like, she was on the borderline. So I said, oh, it's not too bad. Like, her mom that never heard about, like, uh, mental health disorder or uh, you're on the border of, of something, right? Like, and then she was in the U.S. with a 4.0 average psych major with social work on the side. She must say, oh, my goodness, this is my mom, right? Like, uh, exactly. <laughs> like, we're both psych majors. Both have yeah. <laughs> both are, like, high-functioning, so nobody believes us. Like, we're very much yeah. resonant her story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a therapist and I had a 3.96 GPA and that shit was bananas not going well. <laughs> oh, especially when you look at the abnormal books, right? When they talk about BPD, it's often half a page. And let me tell you, it's not a very like a rosy what they say. And then I cannot wait that they put this out in the garbage and put more because we say that today, having BPD is a prognostic that has, is a diagnosis that has the best prognostic because they have there there are very good treatment and the problem is the availability of the treatment compared to what you were saying Laurie like uh, 20 years ago or even like 10 years ago uh, I remember when Sasha passed away we did a fundraising actually the money we received when she passed away we we did uh, a training for hospital people that are either like therapists, a hospital, a clinician to train them in DBT. And some people were saying they had waited 10 years to be able to have a training, right? 
And then we had trained at the time like 70 people in this. And then their goal, like the requirement was they needed to train or to transfer the knowledge within the department, right? When we look today, when we talk about DP, like the DBT, most of the people knew or know what DBT is all about. And compared to before, 10 years ago, nobody knew much about it, right? It was very like secluded. However, what we still need to do is the accessibility and even the affordability. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of private clinic, but not too many that are offered for free or very accessible, right? Or it could be the wait list and things like that. Absolutely. And so was DBT offered to Sasha when she was inpatient? Oh, this is another sad story, right? So after she um, she passed, like uh, in March, she got the diagnosis. And then we tried to bring her back here to Toronto and looking for services to treat BPD and then waitlist or, or like uh, office were closed. And especially even to try to have a doctor. Like I always say, like, that was a perfect storm for a situation. And, and many people often say, you know, in my situation, I had a perfect storm uh, with different uh, things, but very like could be similar. So like uh, when she moved to the U.S., her doctor retired trying to find a doctor because in order for her to come back to have a referral with a, a psychiatrist, she needed a doctor referral. She didn't have any doctors that uh, just to say how how unorganized the system is like a year and a half after she had passed away, I was still receiving letters say, we are still looking to find you a doctor. So, so Gosh, when we tried to come I here, I can only imagine how that would have been for you, yeah. Lynn. Like, yeah. I just want to say that that systemic failure is devastating, but then having to have the reminder Right. Oh, my goodness. I am so sorry. Yeah, that was really hard. So then what happened, like we couldn't find anything here. So then we managed to find something in the U.S. that was private. So we went there and then after like uh, six weeks or so of treatment, they were saying she needed probably three to six months. And we didn't know why. And we couldn't afford to pay private. So we were trying to bring her back home. And then this is when after another suicide attempt. And that one, I think that was for me, like the moment, like she was on her dying bed. And then well, the day before the doctor said, oh, she's going to have a very tough recovery, but she'll be fine. And then as the hours were progressing, she looked more like tired and really as if she was going instead of recovering. And then uh, she had told us, said, Mama, Papa, I'm really sorry. Uh, that I, I break your trust. I just couldn't live with the excruciating pain of the BPD. And then she said, now I'm ready to come home. And then the next day she couldn't come home. She wasn't there anymore, right? But when she told us that, then they said, oh my goodness, we need to do something about that, right? And then we find out why she needed more because there was like a, an alleged rape that happened on campus where she was. And then this is why there was a huge PTSD that needed to be addressed. And then we know with BPD, the uh, BPD needs to be stabilized first 
before you start working with the PTSD. So she needed now to work on this, but we couldn't afford to uh, pay for longer treatment. So we're trying to find treatment here. So after she passed away, we looked at her uh, medical file. We asked to have a medical file at the different locations she was. And on many, many occasions, it says DBT could be useful to her. Even at, uh, at the university she was at, she was a research assistant. And the person she was referring to, uh, like, I mean, reporting to her, that person's boss was the BPD guru and was offering DBT at very, like, uh, affordable costs. But the referral never got there, right, for her to be there. And then when she was at the uh, residential uh, treatment, I would say if she could have just waited an extra day. Because the day that, um, th this is another story I can go off uh, at the hospital, like she was um, really like a, a declared brain dead the following day. But the moment that uh, she really disconnected, I really felt it, right? And then uh, I remember starting to call everybody, telling my daughter was gone. And the doctor hadn't even spoken to me yet. But the point is when I, I connected with her therapist and the psychiatrist at the time that she was treated, they were telling me that, oh my goodness, Marsha Lennon had just went public to say that she had BPD herself. And with the treatment and things like this, this is why she created the DPT treatment. And I remember uh, Sasha was always saying, you know, had a great life and what's, and what's the purpose for me of going on if I cannot get better. And I was thinking if she would have only heard Marsha say this, this could have given her hope, right? Because like you said, when you have like a, a 3.9 average or a good average going to school and things like that. It's hard to see when your struggle and the, the excruciating pain said, how can I go forward? And then this was, this would have been a message of hope. If you continue working at it, and if you're surrounding with the people that understand you, then you're prepared for the world that is not always caring or nice or compassionate, right? I truly believe that it could have made a difference and it was in our case. So this is why this, this is another reason why I really work hard at sharing those skills and the understanding for families, because I truly believe that in skills and hope together, right? The loved one and family members can try to work together collectively to have both a life worth living, right? And I remember, like, we had the opportunity to uh, be invited to well, meet Marsha and then go to her place and have a dinner with her. And then uh, she told us, I'm really sorry that uh, my treatment failed your daughter. And we, we told Marsha, it's not the treatment that failed her. What failed her is really the affordability and then the accessibility. And we'll do everything in our power to change this landscape. So this way, more people can have access to it because we all deserve to have a life worth living on. Wow, Lynn, 
I, I knew a bit about your family story, um, but just, I am so sorry that the system failed you. And I know we are all so sorry. And uh, yeah. I was just going to say like, even Sasha in her journal, she wrote, you know, this DBT for me is like as essential as water for me to survive. In a perfect world, it would be free for everyone that needs it and clinician could find a way and she put and clinician would find a way to be paid. You see, like she had already that dialectic thinking, right? That both are possible making mm-hmm. available free, like for everyone there, or at least for everyone that needs it and people that needs to be paid can be paid, but without not being on the detriment of the people in need. right? Yeah. And gosh, your, your daughter, was so incredibly smart at such a young age to like understand that as a clinician, as a therapist, I do teach DBT skills and I actually host a DBT drop-in group for $25 access. And I can't call it DBT, right? I call it emotion regulation and I can build under Medicaid for DBT skills, but it can't be called a DBT program because Mm -hmm. to get certified in the States, it's another $5,000 minimum plus supervision hours. That's like hundreds of supervision hours. And that's for people that already have a hundred grand and seven years minimum of college who are most of the time barely getting paid enough to cover their basic living costs, working as a therapist in community mental health and like, aren't even really taught about dialectical behavioral therapy and the benefits of it when it's equally, if not more beneficial than cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and And serves a bigger audience. Yes. That was exactly what I was going to say. So from the system's perspective, it's just so strange to me. We're not, we're not getting trained on how to implement cognitive behavioral therapy. You get a master's degree, you do your supervision, you check out some worksheets in a book maybe, and you talk to people and really like DBT is not that different, right? Like these skills are teachable. You guys teach them at at your organization. The only thing that's different about DBT are these comprehensive treatment programs. And to me, it's like if a staff member is working in a comprehensive wraparound facility with multiple a week group sessions, individual therapy, psychiatry, and family therapy, then those clinicians should have that kind of formal training. Mm -hmm. But all of the rest of us out here in community mental health, we should be using DBT skills and nobody thinks that they can because they think that they can't bill for it because they're not in a DBT program. It's all so messy, but it's such a huge system failure. That's why we like, it would be nice if we could restructure the system, right? Because yes, there will be maybe like a certain percentage that need to have the comprehensive but mm-hmm. other people that if we look at the early intervention, 
you need the prevention, then the skills could be more than sufficient to go with this and give a proper skill. So this way you're, you're able to handle your situation. And then when things are getting harder, then you have your protective toolbox, right? And not to bring yourself so high. Like I always look at Sasha by the time she got treatment, unfortunately, she was at the edge of the cliff. But it took her a while to get there. But unfortunately, the people that uh, did intervention didn't have or didn't offer, like you were saying, like the proper uh, tools, right? So by the time she was there, like just a little push, and this is how she fell, right? And this is why the importance of bringing the skills so, so much more earlier, right? And like I said, even in the community, that would be such a nice way to do it. So this way, when you, you're you struggling a little bit, you have difficulty, then you could go there, right? But then it's like stage four. Like I like the someone else are talking about stage four, right? Depending of where you are. When we say it doesn't have necessarily be a young person because a young person at maybe... 17 years old could be still a stage four, right? So we cannot like base this just on age, but really on the experience of the person and then see the different level of the treatment, right? Like the, like the stage of the treatment. And then, but I'm saying if we would do prevention and early intervention, we would be way more better as a society, right? Mm -hmm. And not just to say treatment as usual, right? Totally. And I was one of those people who benefited seriously from not the comprehensive therapy. Like I probably would have dropped out had it been comprehensive because I was trying to do school and work and all this stuff. And I just did groups and it changed my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have a ton of time left. And I really want to hear more about how you've taken this huge tragedy in your life and turned it into this organization that's preventing this from happening Mm -hmm. to so many others. And so do you want to talk a little bit about Sash Bear and yeah, yeah, like it's uh, like I say, after that, Sasha told us that she couldn't live with that BPD excruciating pain. We felt we needed to do something like I, maybe two options either I sue or I work in collaboration. And then I didn't, I, I'm not a type of person that likes to go necessarily sewing with the negativity that comes with that. But I say, okay, I want to still use my experience and change the world in a positive way. So this is how like, I was blessed to have all these great people surrounding me. And I would say like uh, Dr. Blaise Aguirre, he's the one that introduced me to Dr. Perry Hoffman, introduced me to the Family Connection, that she's the one introduced me to, after this, to uh, Marsha Lanahan and, and continue like this and building, like really showing that system fail and what can we do together to not to change but really to transform the system right and then like i said like yes we don't have enough clinician that are have with the dbt but then we're going to shake the ground up so then this way you'll have no choice then to think outside the box because your structure is failing right So I just didn't want to knock at the door because it would take too long. So really trying to collaborate with others to um, transform the system and fill all those gaps, right? And this is how I created the Sash Bear Foundation and trying to fill like little by little the different gaps that we went through and helping families 
helping their loved one. Because I truly believe that families are struggling sometimes, like um, suffering as much as their as their loved one. Because we need more understanding, right? We need to understand better the way that we act and react has an impact on our loved one, how they re- will react. And if we understand this and work together, we can really like have a more compassionate world, right? And have everybody have a life worth living. And it takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of work, takes a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, thinking outside the box, right? And so what kind of services does Sash Fair offer? Just thinking what our community might be able to partake in. We offer the Family Connection Program, which is um, a program for family members. When we say family members, it could be partners, it could be siblings, it could be parents, grandparents, friends uh, that are 18 and up and they have uh, that wants to support more effectively uh, a loved one uh, that are struggling with a BPD or emotional dysregulation. It's a 12-week program. It's free of charge. Uh, we offer them like uh, around a year Uh three to five times a year. And then we offer as well, like um, we call it the expert series, which is a webinar uh, offered once a month by an expert in the field on different subjects that can help family members help their loved one, having a better understanding again, a bit like we were talking about BPD sometime as a lot of uh, co-concurrent disorders, understanding better eating disorder or what OCD or things like that. So like bringing expert in the field and really like providing an hour of better understanding for family members. Um, and then we're working on other program we're offering as well, alumni session. So people can come and uh, learn more deeply the skills or try to understand more how to apply them for their situation. Everything we do is free of charge. And as you know, Laurie, we do a walk as well once a year to raise awareness on BPD, to eliminate stigma, and especially to show our loved one that they're not alone, that we're there with them through that. And together, anything is possible. Yes, it'll be some bumpy in the road, and together we'll be able to go through it, right? So this is in a nutshell what we do. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. And I'll definitely add all of the links to your site and everything. And I just have to reflect on the walk. So there was one um, in my hometown for the first time this year. And uh, Lynn and her team asked me to speak at it briefly, which was a huge honor. And just to see all of these people who came out in the pouring rain, like it was so rainy. It was absolutely ridiculous in May. And to see all these people wearing orange shirts in the town that I grew up in being like there to support people with BPD, it was unbelievable. And I will obviously be there next year as well. And I know that I posted a lot on our Instagram to gather some donations for your organization when that happened as well. But just, oh, thank you for that validation of like, wow, look at all these people who are here and came out, um, including like the mayor and stuff. Like it wasn't like, like just like a couple of family members. It was like a great turnout for a rainy day. That's amazing, you guys. Maybe Sarah, you can do one in Portland. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That would be so cool to get connected somehow if you want to, to collaborate for sure. Mm-hmm. And are your services available in the States too, or are they worldwide? Well, like if you look at the expert series is worldwide. And then when we look at the uh, family connection, like it's in the U.S. too, but sometimes we have people from the U.S. that we, we we can allow them to come. Like we try to refer them to the U.S., but the U.S. sometimes their wait list is a little bit bigger. So then if there's room, we sometimes we allow them to sneak in. Like we let the U.S. know and they say, oh, yes, maybe take them because it won't, it may not be before a year and a half. So then we do it. Um, totally. Is there a United States-based Sash? It's not It's uh, the National Education Alliance for BPD. Got it. Okay. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. Awesome. Sash Bear is really Sash Bear. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's why we wear orange, you know, like uh, when I think it's like Sasha all her wall was orange. And I didn't understand at the time, right? And then now I'm thinking, you know, it was probably bringing brightness into her darkness, right? Absolutely. My husband and I still have our shirts from the walk and we wear them all the time. So we will continue to do that. And um, just Lynn, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and for all the work you do Um, on behalf of everybody that has BPD. We are so thankful for you and incredibly sorry for your loss. Thank you. It's not one day that I don't think of her. She's really here with me. And then she's the one that's giving me like the 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 energy and the passion mm-hmm. that and then for me to become a better person right like uh, it's really my goal that to become a better person and to help share uh what i learned through other families so then uh, we feel that we can make a difference in the life of our uh, children or loved one right? I really want to thank you. Like, really, it was uh, lovely. Thank you for inviting me. I hope this can help someone. And then if they need information, they can always send uh, an email at info at sashbear.org. And then I hope uh, we'll connect again soon. So then you can come and give us a webinar. It's a one hour on Wednesday evening from 7 to 8. <laughs> Perfect. We will definitely connect with you following this. And thanks again for your time. It was so nice to chat with Thank you. Thank you. And then we always end with a big hug. So <laughs> love it. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey. And we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline, and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.